Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. This is a break from our normal uh, sermon series, but of course last week was also a break from our normal series, and uh, the next two weeks will also be a break from our normal sermon series, so it kind of feels like it's not normal, or that it is normal. I don't even know which it is. Uh, But we will be back in Genesis in January. (laughs) I promise. Uh, But this morning we're looking at Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to read the whole chapter except the last sentence, which really goes with the following chapter. Uh, Before we read that, though, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the promise that you are with us. Uh, We thank you for the words of Jesus, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, Uh, so that our labor is not in vain. Uh, For you are with us by your spirit, and we have the hope of the resurrection uh, on the last day. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would help us to see all of our work in light of those two realities, the reality of the presence of your spirit now and the reality of the hope of the resurrection then. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we come to your word, uh, that you would work your word deep into our hearts, that you would give us understanding uh, and wisdom, even as we look at uh, the book of Revelation, even as we jump into the middle of this book, uh, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, We know that he is uh, a good teacher, and so we pray for his work in our hearts and minds this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, 
He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Has Christ changed anything? If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that the Christian life isn't easy. Sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, is slow. Temptation is everywhere. And some days, compromise seems like the best option. There is a smorgasbord of theological options, even within the conservative Christian church, so it's hard to know what to believe. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between truth and heresy. The church in many parts of the world is persecuted violently. In America, the church no longer enjoys the privileged place it once did and is often openly mocked and derided for its supposed outdated regressive beliefs. Many of us live under continual guilt and shame and depression. And so we wonder, is this the life that Jesus has for us? Is this what his death purchased? Has Jesus' work done any good? Is anything different? Has anything changed? You may be ready to throw in the towel, uh, to give up, to give in. All right, a, a secularized belief system, that would be an easier sell to your neighbors. Sexual temptation seems like more fun. And why not just give in to the pressures around you? Now, hold on. Uh, don't get up and leave at this point. There are, question, there are answers to these questions, and they are found in the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is one of those often overlooked books of the Bible. Uh, it seems at times like a fantasy novel, and it may be a little hard to understand. And those who claim to understand it often seem like they're out in left field somewhere. Now, we will see uh, then what you think of me by the end of this time together. Um, but the book of Revelation is both a, a, a comfort and a battle cry. It was written to a church that was struggling, uh, various congregations facing persecution and heresy and temptation, and the call to them was persevere, overcome. To the one who conquers, he will receive the reward. What God is doing through this book is giving us a, a glimpse behind the curtain, into the behind-the-scenes spiritual war. And God wants us to see that the trials we face are a part of something bigger. But more importantly, the battle is already won, and the victory is secure. There is a, a real spiritual war going on, and we, ne we need to interpret life in light of that war. We, 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 we need to not ignore it or pretend it's not happening, and yet we don't need to be afraid either. Again, battle cry and comfort. 
This is what we'll see in Revelation chapter 12. Satan is furious, but don't let that fool you. Right? He's furious because he has already been defeated. And so we can be confident in the face of spiritual battles with temptation, with falsehood or derision, looking to Jesus, the seed of the woman who has crushed the serpent's head. Now we're jumping into the middle of this book, and I won't go into all the details, but chapter 12 begins a, a new section in the book of Revelation. And while Revelation uh, befuddles scholars and lay people alike at times, uh, the truth is, if you want to understand it, uh, become like a child and read it like a picture book. God doesn't put things in his word intending to confuse us. He puts them there to teach us, even the book of Revelation. Some of the details might still elude you. An intense study, of course, can be rewarding, but the overall message will become clear and compelling. And so let me, let me first summarize what we see in Revelation 12, and then we'll go into it in more detail. Uh, the people of God in this chapter, in the very beginning, are pictured as a woman uh, who gives birth to Jesus the Messiah because Jesus comes from God's people, Israel. Satan is pictured as a dragon who wants to destroy Jesus, but he fails. And Jesus, after he completes his work, ascends to the Father's throne in heaven where the dragon cannot touch him. The woman, God's people, then goes into the wilderness where God protects her during the time of trial. Uh, and suddenly uh, the scene shifts then in verse 7. Uh, we see a, a war in heaven between the archangel Michael and the dragon who is the devil. The dragon is defeated and is cast out of heaven. What Christ did on earth in defeating Satan has ramifications in heaven. And then in, in verses 10 through 12, we hear a loud voice celebrating the victory of Christ over Satan, announcing the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. Christ's victory meant that Satan had been thrown out of heaven, but it also meant that Satan had come down to earth angry. Again, in verses 13 and 14, we're, we're back at the scene in verse 6. The two scenes have kind of caught up with one another. Satan seeks to, seeks to attack the woman, the church, but she is carried by God on eagle's wings into the wilderness where God cares for her during the time of trial. Satan then pours out his accusations and slander from his mouth to devour the church, but again, God comes to her rescue. When Satan realizes he can't touch the church and the core of who she is, he goes after her children, uh, which we will see means he attacks God's people in mundane ways to, to do them harm, even though he can't ultimately destroy us. You see, Revelation 12 is a, a picture of a battle of Satan's fury, of Christ's victory, of God's protection, and of the church doing battle, persevering in faith in the midst of trials. So here's what we're going to see from this. Four points. First, the war is real. Uh, Satan is angry. There's a war going on. Second, the victory is won. Christ is victorious. Third, God's care is certain. And fourth, now go fight. So the war is real, the victory is won, God's care is certain, now go fight. First, the war is real. Uh, C.S. Lewis begins his book, The Screwtape Letters, by saying there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils themselves, he says, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I wonder into which error you fall. 
Our first point addresses Lewis's materialist when we say that there is a real spiritual war going on. Look at verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. John sees a sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Uh, Who do we have here? Uh, We have the sun and the moon and the 12 stars all mentioned, which actually echoes uh, Joseph's dream. You may remember it back in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, In Joseph's dream, there the sun and the moon refer to Jacob and Rachel, and the 11 stars refer to Joseph's 11 brothers, of course, Joseph being the 12th. And so the woman is, is really symbolic for the people of Israel. She's a picture of the people of Israel. And, and this is really common in the prophets. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, Israel is often pictured as a woman, even a woman about to give birth. She is in pain. Sometimes something wonderful is about to happen, but for the moment there is this agony and trial. Again, in the Old Testament, this woman is often referred to as, as Jerusalem, the city, and the inhabitants of the city are her children. And so the nation is symbolized as uh, in the city, which is personified as a woman whose citizens are her children. I I mentioned the city here because this woman in Revelation 12 will show back up in Revelation 21 as the new Jerusalem, the the people of God, the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven prepared for her husband. Uh, Here though, she's about to give birth and uh, she does give birth in verse five to a male child who will rule the nations. Jesus came from Israel, so far so good. The the woman uh, refers to Israel. The child is the Messiah who came from her. And yet Jesus is not the only child of Israel. In verse 17, the dragon will go out to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so this woman represents the people of God in the Old and the New Testament, uh, the one people of God. She is the people out of which Jesus came, and she is the mother of believers, Uh, Paul will say in Galatians 4.26 that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And so the woman is the the corporate people of God uh, to which the the people of God belong. So being clothed with the sun, right, this is the church as God sees her uh, glorious, right? The, The moon under her feet shows that she's in a place of authority. Being crowned, she is victorious, Uh, This is the people of God as God sees them, as they truly are. Verse 3 then introduces the dragon. Uh, Verse 9 tells us that this great dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. This is the enemy of God's people. He stands behind all the evil in the world. Verse 3 pictures him as a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. Uh, Diadems are kingly crowns. They're not the victor's crown of verse 1. Diadems picture authority, and in this case, the authority which Satan claims for himself falsely. Horns in Scripture are a symbol of power. Think about the horns of a buck or a bull or a goat. Uh, The ten horns then picture Satan's great power. The seven heads are maybe a little harder to figure out why seven heads. Uh, Some say the seven heads refer to Satan's great wisdom as he seeks to attack God's people, others to Satan's many faces in the world. Uh, Perhaps it just speaks to the completeness of evil personified in this one creature. 
Uh, whatever the case, it adds to the ferocity of the picture, this great, terrifying seven-headed dragon. And finally, the red is reminiscent, of course, of blood. Isaiah pictures actually God who fights on behalf of his people, and we're told in Isaiah 63 that his, his garments were crimson with the blood of his enemies. Well, in this case, the dragon's red color reminds us that he is a murderer who seeks to take the life of God's people and shed innocent blood. So this, this ferocious creature, we are told in verse 4, swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And if the stars refer to the same thing here as in verse 1, uh, this means Satan is waging war on God's people. Or it may just be meant to show the dragon's great power. Uh, next, he stands before the woman waiting for her to give birth so that he might devour the child. Uh, whatever Satan knew and whatever his motives, when Christ came into the world, Satan attacked. He wanted to thwart God's plan. Uh, you remember when Herod slaughtered the male children in Bethlehem in the hopes of killing Christ? Or when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? Or when he entered Judas, tempting him to betray Jesus? Satan wanted to devour Jesus. It, it's even possible that Satan thought he had done it at the cross, right? He, he tempted Judas to the betrayal. He wanted Jesus to go to the cross. But of course, Satan was wrong. That was not his victory, not at all. Verse 5 records that the woman gave birth to a male child, and really skipping over Jesus' life, ministry, and death uh, simply tells us that Jesus was caught up to God by his resurrection and ascension and to his throne. Satan had failed. Christ had risen victorious. But Satan didn't give up. Uh, in fact, he only got angry. Satan is furious, Scripture tells us. The devil is a poor loser. He failed to devour the child, so he goes after the mother, and he's angry. He knows his time is short, so he's angry. And we'll see his attacks on the mother don't work, so he goes after the rest of her children. And yet you might, you hear this description of this battle, and you might say, okay, I hear what you're saying. It's kind of a wild scene, but what does it look like? Uh, how is Satan going after the church today? Uh, let's notice one more image before we try to understand what's being symbolized. In verse 15, Satan is going to attack the woman by pouring water like a river out of his mouth. Why? Well, what's that image, pouring water out of his mouth? Uh, in Revelation, various uh, dangerous things come out of people's mouths, actually. It happens quite a bit in this book. Even Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth on multiple occasions. Now, if you try to picture it literally, it's weird. So what's the point, right? Well, in that case, Jesus' word is his sword, right? That's why it's coming out of his mouth. It's his word. And what comes out of our mouths is our words. So how is Satan attacking this woman with his words like a flood? Well, what does that look like? It looks like things like uh, accusation and slander and false teaching, words used to destroy and one of the things people often overlook when reading the book of Revelation is that the letters to the seven churches in the beginning of the book are talking about the same realities pictured in the rest of the book, right? It's not that all of a sudden things change and we're talking about something different. It's the same reality in the seven letters that's pictured in the rest of the book. Well, what do we find in those letters? Persecution, slander, imprisonment, heresy and false teaching, temptation and immorality, how does Satan go after the church? Through persecution, deception, and temptation. 
He is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. He is a murderer from the beginning. He makes war in part through, through physical persecution, but also slander and libel. He is the tempter. When, while Revelation 12 doesn't highlight this itself, other parts of Revelation certainly do, and it's part of his overall tactic to destroy the people of God. Uh, you may not see a dragon devouring and making war, but do you face temptation? Does the world around you try to convince you that Christianity isn't true? Do false religions appeal to you? Does the disdain of others cause you to want to hide your faith or give it up altogether? This is our spiritual war, the slander, lies, and temptations of the devil. There is an enemy behind these things seeking to devour you, a dragon who is angry and bitter and looking to take it out on someone. So to say this, right, to say that we have an enemy, a dragon seeking to devour us, that's not comforting. And, and really, if the imagery is terrifying, you got to figure the, the reality will be far worse. And so we need to keep going. So first, the war is real, right? The devil is angry. But second, the victory is won. Uh, Jesus' victory in verse 5 is, is easy to miss. We're told that he is born destined to rule, and then caught up to God and to his throne. The language of ruling the nations comes from Psalm 2. The nations are rebelling against God and his anointed king, but God laughs. And then we hear the words of God's king or Messiah in Psalm 2, 7 and 9. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is destined to be the king who rules the nations. And in his ascension, when he is seated on God's throne in heaven, he takes up that role and begins to rule. Satan, as the evil force behind the nation's rebellion, has lost. Jesus' rule has begun. And just in case we miss it in verse 5, it's spelled out for us in verses 7 to 12. The scene shifts. There's a war in heaven. The archangel Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels. The dragon is defeated and thrown down. And it, it, it's hard to see how Christ's ascension and the war in heaven relate, or at least at first. It's difficult. We're, we're wondering, okay, why this scene shift? What's going on? And then we get to verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In verse 10, we get this loud voice announcing Christ's victory, celebrating the inauguration of his rule. And notice there, there are three steps in this proclamation. First, uh, the, the, the speaker says, the salvation and power and kingdom and authority of Christ have come. Well, well when? When did they come? In, in Christ's ascension to God's right hand, uh, where he took up all authority in heaven and on earth, when Christ was seated on God's throne, according to verse 5. For, then, the middle of verse 10 says, for, meaning the way we know Christ's authority has come, is the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
You see, the overthrow of Satan is evidence of Christ's ascension to God's throne. The coming of Christ's kingdom coincides with and is demonstrated by the the casting out of Satan. And then verse 11 says, they have conquered, meaning the people of God have conquered. How have they conquered? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Okay, what are, we, what are we seeing here? Well, Satan is the accuser. Uh, we see him in this role in the book of Job. Uh, we see him this, in this role in the book of Zechariah. We read Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 earlier, where Satan accused Joshua before God. Satan accuses God's people. He is the, the prosecuting attorney in God's court. And so how is he conquered then? How is he defeated? By the blood of the Lamb. Christ died for our sin, which means Satan's accusations fall on deaf ears. Yes, I am as bad as Satan might suggest. I may be even worse, but Christ has died for my sin. My sins are forgiven. Satan is thrown out of court. His reign as prosecuting attorney is over. Christ's reign has come. By his death for sin, Jesus defeated Satan. As Paul put it in Colossians 2, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in so doing, Paul goes on to say, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, uh, Christ disarmed Satan and his uh, evil angels by triumphing over them in his cross. By his blood, Jesus defeated Satan, whose accusations are now null and void. He has been thrown out of court because Christ, our great advocate, has begun to reign. Here's the great truth of Christ's victory, right? However uh, guilty you may feel, if you confess Jesus, Satan has nothing against you. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. When you stand before God on the last day, the, the, the prosecuting attorney will be nowhere to be found. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not Satan. He has been thrown out of court. But this is a victory which begins a war. We experience trouble now, not because Satan has free reign, but because he has been cast down. His power has been undercut. His authority brought to nothing. Revelation 12, 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Persecution and rejection, temptation and compromise, deception and heresy, these are, are not signs that Christ's work has been ineffective. They are signs that Satan is angry because he's been thrown down. He's angry because his only real power to harm God's people, to accuse us before the Father, has been taken away. The war is real, but the victory is won. Uh, Don't deny Satan's existence, but don't cower before him either. Not only is Christ's victory won, but God's care is certain. God's care in the moment is certain. In verse 6, after Satan fails to devour the son, he goes after the woman. But she flees into the wilderness to a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Uh, We see the same thing the second time the story is told as well. After the devil is thrown down in great wrath, verse 12, he pursues the woman, verse 13. 
But the woman is given the wings of an eagle so she can fly away to the wilderness, to the place where she will be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Again, what's going on here? What, what, what do we see in this picture? First, why does, the, why does the woman flee to the wilderness? Well, in, in the Exodus, you may remember, Israel leaves Egypt and goes into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of protection from the enemy. It's not the land of milk and honey, but it is a place of freedom. It's that place in between, right? No longer slavery, but not yet the promised land. And what does God do for Israel in the wilderness? He nourishes her, feeding her on bread from heaven and water from the rock. What about this number, 1,260 days or a time, times, and half a time? Uh, We find similar numbers elsewhere in Revelation. Uh, 1,260 is also mentioned in Revelation 11.3. Just before that, in Revelation 11.2, we find the number 42 months. And commentators recognize right, that these are are all the same. Uh, If you round off a month to 30 days, 42 months is 1,260 days. 42 months is also three and a half years, a time, two times, and half a time. Three and a half times or three and a half years. And so the, the, the real question is, what is the significance of this number? What is the significance of three and a half years? Uh, the first thing we need to say is we should avoid trying to take this number literally in some way. Uh, why? Well, just look at the context, right? Th- this chapter, as with the whole book, is full of symbolic imagery. The church is not literally a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Satan is not literally a serpent who pours water out of his mouth to sweep away God's people. Why would we all of a sudden say, oh, but this number, this has to be taken literally? If we do, we really violate one of the most important basic principles of hermeneutics, context. On the contrary, the number three and a half is half of seven. And seven is a highly symbolic number in the scriptures, especially uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, Seven is the number for perfection or completion. Uh, This number, 1,260 days or 42 months or a time, times, and half a time, when it comes up in Revelation, always refers to a time of trouble or trial. And so what is being said about that trouble or trial? The the trouble or trial of God's people will not reach its ultimate end. That is, God's people, the church, will not be led astray. The the church will not be devoured by Satan. The church will not be swept away in the flood of his lies and slander and temptation. Rather, before that happens, our wilderness wanderings will come to an end. You see, the number is meant to be a source of hope. However bad it gets, it will come to an end before Satan accomplishes his purposes and the church is utterly destroyed. Satan is angry because his time is short, not meaning short versus long, but his time is to be cut short. He will not accomplish his purposes. They will not reach their ultimate end. Uh, We live presently in between our freedom from sin and slavery and our entrance into our heavenly promised land, the new creation. Uh, Like Israel did for 40 years, we live in the wilderness. Uh, The wilderness is both a time when God cares for his people, nourishes them, provides for them bread from heaven and water from the rock, and a time of trial. God is caring for us, and he has provided Jesus, our bread from heaven, and his spirit, our living water. He nourishes us and provides for us. But the wilderness is also a time of testing and trial. Satan is defeated, but he's angry. And so slander and false teaching are the order of the day. We must face temptation, persecution, and lies. 
But we know Satan's fury will not reach its logical end, right? It will be cut short. It will not come to its perfection, to its completion. Persecution and trial is real, but time-bound. And in the meantime, God will protect us from the lies, the slander, the temptation that comes from Satan's mouth. And so the war is real. The victory is won. God's care is certain. Therefore, go fight. Our passage ends with the dragon becoming even more furious. The woman seems to be untouchable as the earth swallowed up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Uh, Exodus 15:12 says the earth swallowed them. Uh, so the earth opens up its mouth and swallows the river that the dragon poured out. Why? Uh, to me, this is actually the oddest image in the chapter. Uh, why is the earth opening up its mouth to swallow the river? What's going on there? Uh, well, remember, the accuser has been thrown down because our, our sins have been dealt with by the blood of the Lamb. That means when Satan pours out his accusations and slander against us, they cannot hurt us. Hence, in this symbolic world, the ground opens up and swallows the river. His words never make it to the heart of God's people. It symbolically shows us that if God is for us, who can be against us? Satan's attacks cannot touch us. God moves heaven and earth to come to our aid. Now, this only makes the dragon more angry. He is a poor loser, right? You, you know the kind who knocks the Monopoly board across the room, who, who throws his golf clubs, or who gets nasty when the game isn't going his way. Uh, Satan becomes furious with the woman, and he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now, you might ask, if he couldn't touch the woman, what makes him think he, he will be able to touch her offspring? And the answer is found in understanding how they relate in this uh, symbolic world. Uh, really, the, the woman and her offspring are the same group of people, right? Like a city and its inhabitants are one and the same. So here, then how do they differ? Uh, the best explanation is this. The woman refers to the church as God sees her from heaven. So when we first see this woman, she appears in heaven, verse 1. She's clothed with the sun. Uh, she is the church in heaven as God sees her. Uh, yes, she is in the wilderness, but Satan is unable to touch her, the real her at her core, because he has been cast out of heaven and his words are swallowed up by the earth. The rest of her offspring, then, is the church as it is on earth. And so on the one hand, we are secure. Satan can't touch our status. He can't accuse us to the Father. He can't sweep us away with his slander and accusations. On the other hand, Satan can do his worst. He can persecute. He can tempt. He can lie. He can encourage us toward compromise and heresy. He can do his best to make our lives miserable. But he can't touch us not in any, any ultimate sense, which means we can have hope even in the midst of trial. And so even though Satan can't touch the, the us, quote, in heaven, we will have to face him on earth. And how do we do that? Verse 17 tells us. Verse 17 tells us uh, to keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Uh, these are, are really just two parts of our spiritual warfare, keeping the commandments of God and holding to the testimony of Jesus. We conquer, verse 11 tells us, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so hold to the testimony of Jesus. Don't back down from your profession of faith and show your faith by your works as you keep the commandments of God. If Christ is not victorious, your battle is in vain. You might as well give up. But if Christ is victorious, we win by clinging to him by faith. But of course, genuine faith always leads to obedience. Uh, you can't face the enemy if you are sleeping with him. You can't face the enemy if you are still eating at his table, right? You can't resist the devil if you are begging for his bread. 
Sometimes Christians downplay obedience in the Christian life, but, but we fight the devil in part by obeying Jesus. Are you actively and consciously pursuing obedience in the Christian life? If not, you're not resisting the devil. You're not engaged in the battle because he is trying to get you to disobey. He wants half-hearted obedience, hypocritical obedience, outward, thoughtless, routine obedience, as long as your heart's not in it. That doesn't mean, of course, don't bother obeying if your heart's not in it. It means pursue obedience, whether you feel like it or not. Devote yourself to God and his work in the world. Commit no matter what that this will be your way forward. Obedience to God's commands and the testimony of faith in Jesus. The war is real. The victory is won. God's care is certain. Now go fight. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to see the reality that is all around us, that there is a spiritual war going on. Help us to see that war. Help us to know that the victory has been won, but that there are still battles to be fought. And help us to fight them by faith and obedience, trusting and obeying Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.